Bonjour and bienvenue to Lulabelle's Francophiles. Je m'appelle Lou, and in this podcast, I will help you to keep your Frenchy vibes fluttering and help you to lose yourself in France without even leaving home. In each episode, we chat about our French experiences with guests who live in Australia, in France, and right around the world. And we share ideas for how to satisfy the Francophile within you. Francophilers can now also subscribe to my YouTube channel, Francophile Fix, where I post little movies and clips to keep us all connected to France. Find the link to the Francophile Fix YouTube channel in the show notes from today's episode, as well as the Little Bells Francophiles website, Instagram, and a fabulous Frenchie Spotify playlist. Alors... Aujourd'hui, my guest is living what I think is my dream life, although I'm sure it's nowhere near as easy as she makes it look or seem. Cynthia Coutu is a Canadian living in Paris who spends a lot of her time immersing in the world of champagne. Bienvenue, Little Bells Francophiles. Cynthia, ça va? Bonjour from uh, Paris. I'm uh, about a 10-minute walk from the Eiffel Tower right here. Oh, Sounds divine. How wonderful. I wish we were all a 10-minute walk from the Eiffel Tower right now, but we shall live vicariously through you for today. So how did you come to be living there in France? So when I was about 10, my parents switched me from an English public school mm-hmm. to a French private school. Ah. So I have the same education as my neighbour. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, uh, after graduating from my French from France high school in Canada, I studied biology, but then I switched to photography. And I felt during my studies in photography that my professors didn't have the caliber <laughs> that I wanted. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to go down the same route, I'm going to get more solid knowledge mm-hmm. of the history of uh, art. Mm-hmm. So I came to Paris to do a master's in art history, and yes. I loved wine and cheese so much, I found a way to stay. Yeah. <laughs> I love that, was... that. You came for the art and you stayed for the wine and cheese. Yes. So how long ago was that? 31 years. Oh, so you came for a master's and you 31 years later you're still there. Yes. Fabulous. So was that decision then through those 31 years to stay and live in France a definite direction all the time and something that you deliberately opted to take or has your time there been more like an unfolding and evolving journey? It's definitely been a journey and a bit of a zigzag. Mm. Um, So, you know, I did my master's for I think it took me two, three years And then uh, while I was a student, I was uh, working for the Canadian Cultural Centre, hanging their exhibitions and Uh and so on. Mm -hmm. And when I realized, okay, I'm almost finished my studies, what am I going to do? Out of luck, I got a job at the Canadian Embassy. Uh And I worked there for seven years. Mm -hmm. So I had sort of semi-diplomatic status. Yeah. This is around when the internet was just getting started. That's how old I am. Oh, right. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of remember those ended, days. <laughs> back in the early 90s. And I ended up getting a job managing the digital communications for an international organization wow. called the OECD. Uh-huh. And so I was, again, an international civil servant for 16 years. Mm. And during that time, I had a daughter Uh, who's now 15. Mm -hmm. So I lived quite the life while I was working there. I got to travel a lot in the different parts of France. Uh, I loved it. And then a couple of days before my 50th birthday, I got reorged out um, from the organization after working there for 16 years. It was a nice 50th birthday present. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, But It turned out to be a blessing, not even in disguise, because I was pretty miserable at the end. I had to deal with a lot of big egos and politics. That's what it's like when you work in a big uh, corporation of any sort. And I had the luxury of knowing that I would get my pension from the OECD at 60. So I had 10 years that I could do something that really made my heart sing. Yeah. And 
I wanted to stay in France. And my sister, who also lives in Paris, said, well, wine, why don't you do something related to wine? So that's the little light bulb that got me thinking. And I thought I knew a lot about wine, but Mm. I figured it would probably be better to get a piece of paper to prove I did. Uh, Yeah. So at 50, I uh, went back to school, to a wine school. Really? Um, Yeah. Wow. Uh, And I did the Wine and Spirit Education Trust Program. It's kind of like the gold standard for anyone who wants to work in wine, but not necessarily as a sommelier uh, working floor. That wasn't compatible with my lifestyle. Right, no. And um, I'd been there, done that. You know, Mm -hmm. I waitressed to put myself through university in in Canada. first time around. I was not doing that again. (laughs) (laughs) So I signed up. I went to two different wine schools, uh, l'Académie du Vin and Mm -hmm. l'École du Vin. I did uh, one level in English and the other in French because I wanted to become familiar with the technical terms in both languages. Wow. So were you brought up in a French-Canadian household? Is that why you went to school in English and then in French? So my mum is English-Canadian from Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Mm. and my father is French-Canadian from a small village outside of Montreal. So I actually grew up with both. Both. Okay. Well, that makes to me then a lot of sense that you would want to continue to educate yourself in both languages, given that you are living in France. And also that I imagine that you'd have to deal with people in English quite a bit in the wine industry and people that are coming over who don't have a lot of French. So you you kind of need both, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the people who work in Champagne, I deal with in French. Yeah. But my clients are, I'd say, 90% Americans and don't speak very much French. And uh-huh. I'm their interpreter, not just technically for yeah. the information about champagne and yeah. how it's made and all of that. But also, um, sometimes when I take people to small growers, they don't speak very much English. And so uh-huh. I do all the uh, explaining in English. Yes. Your story when you just talked then about, you know, that you found yourself without a job just on your 50th birthday and needed to find something to make your heart sing. I hear that a lot from women my age, I'm in my early 50s, and that it's time to do something that is not the daily grind that has seen them through to that point. And especially through COVID, the amount of people that are looking for something else to actually fill their soul is just Mm -hmm. extraordinary and that change that's going on. So your story of how you changed and you built something from a dream or from a a will to connect with something that is so satisfying to you, I'm sure is going to be quite inspirational to a lot of women out there. Um, You work and are very involved with two of my passions. One is furthering opportunities for women and the other is champagne. So great combo. Tell me a bit about how both those passions intertwine in your world. So when I was at wine school, I realized two things. One, the more you learn about wine, the more you realize there is to learn because Mm -hmm. it touches on everything, history, geography, geology, chemistry, Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. And so after, at the end of my program, I decided to specialize in sparkling wines. Uh Um, And champagne is the ultimate sparkling wine. Mm -hmm. And then I also, at the same time, realized that the wine industry in France is extremely Uh male-dominated. And so I started seeking out female producers of sparkling wine in France. Ah. And I decided to only use sparkling wines made by women or Uh. only take people to visit houses where women play an important role. Oh, oh my goodness. I'm, I can't tell you how, how thrilling that is to hear that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Was it well received? And yes, uh, because just going back to what you said about a lot of 50-year-old women, mm. they, it really speaks to them because yeah. most of them, the ones that I've met, have, you know, they've pretty much raised their kids. Mm-hmm. If they've had a, a job or a career, they've climbed the ladder, they've been there, done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, saw the movie, bought the t-shirt. <laughs> and yeah. 
a lot of the women who um, book me are successful entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. and who often in industries that were male dominated, like uh, pharma Mm -hmm. or uh, a lot of female lawyers, for example, Mm -hmm. book me. And they've often told me, look, you know, like I love champagne. Mm -hmm. If there are two similar styles, similar prices, one made by a man, the other by a woman, I'd be more than happy to uh, support the female producer. But I don't know by looking at a bottle if there's a woman behind it. So that's what drives what I do Mm -hmm. is trying to like, if you look at my Instagram account, there's out of a hundred pictures, there might be one selfie. I despise Mm -hmm. selfies. Mm -hmm. What I try to do is tell the stories about the women behind the bottles so that more people are able to uh, discover female led houses. Yeah. That is just such an extraordinary step that you've taken I think, for furthering the the success of women in an industry where it potentially would be much harder without you pushing, pushing for them. You know, that's just Mm -hmm. a wonderful thing to do. I'm glad that it's been so well received and it's been taken up. You clearly spend a lot of time in the Champagne region. Have you ever lived there or always in Paris? Uh, I've always lived in Paris, but a couple of the producers that uh, I visit often with clients mm-hmm. joke that they want to set up a cot for me in the tank room <laughs> because I'm there so often. <laughs> oh, actually, it's not such a bad idea, I imagine, sometimes. <laughs> Do you drink a lot of champagne when you're down there? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm learning how to, like, because to me, champagne's all about sharing. Yeah. Uh, I call them champagne moments. And so, you know, if I take people to visit one of my favorite growers or houses, I want to drink with them Mm. and share with them. But now I've sort of scaled back a little bit (laughs) because otherwise my liver um, (laughs) just scream at me. But I do, I do drink a lot of champagne. Yeah. 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 Moisey. But uh, it's, you know, what can you do? It loves me. I love it. That's the way it goes. Now, as you said earlier, France has got so many different varieties. And when you were studying all the different varieties, how did you settle on champagne? Was it simply because you love champagne yourself? No. Um, Ah. I mean, everyone has their own sort of wine journey. Mm -hmm. Um, I started out with big reds and then light reds Mm. and then white wines from Burgundy. And champagne only came at the end of my well, it's at my journey now. Yeah. Um, and I decided on champagne more as an intellectual challenge uh-huh. because like, I studied photography, but before that I studied biology. And so I have a scientific, geeky, nerdy side to me. Yeah. And I found that champagne was the most complex of all of the wines mm-hmm. because, you know, it can be a blend of different grape varieties, of different terroirs, of different years, of different vessels used to make the, make mm-hmm. the wine. Mm-hmm. And so I think on my tombstone, it'll be written still learning about champagne because uh, just the, the methods to make it, the choices the winemakers can make, the history of the region fascinate me. And now when I look at a wine that's just one grape variety from one year, I kind of find that boring. <laughs> yeah. It's such a complex wine, clearly. And I can just see your brain ticking over as you're talking to me. It's got You've got so much. It's a wine that would really feed your brain as well as, exactly. as, well as your soul. Yeah. Yep. I was supposed to travel to the Champagne area in 2020 with a bunch of girlfriends to celebrate our 50th birthdays, and it never happened, obviously, with COVID hitting the week before we were leaving, actually, it hit. Where do you recommend a group of women should visit if planning a holiday to Champagne? So I've been doing this for about five years, and when it's someone's first time to Champagne, I usually insist that they visit a small grower, female, Mm -hmm. of course, Mm -hmm. in the vineyards, in the hillsides, Mm. and then in the afternoon, um, visiting a big house, either in Reims or Epernay, where women uh, play an important role. Because the hillsides, 
the houses and the cellars were all three inscribed on World Heritage List in oh. 2015. And so if you only go visit the cellars of big houses, you've only got one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So I do have my favorite growers and my favorite houses. Mm. Um, uh, for the growers, um, I like pe- taking people to Pio Sevieno. And uh, she's 10th generation grower. They started making their own champagne three generations ago. And she's just been elected the president of the Association of Independent Champagne Growers. First woman to occupy that role. And so that's one of my favorite growers. Um, And she uh, does this great visit of the vineyards, of the tank room, the cellars. And so you really understand all the production steps involved in making champagne. And she does these gastronomic three-course picnics where uh, each course is paired with a different champagne. Oh, really? You get to sit out on the terrace with a view of the vineyards and enjoy uh, that. So that's one of my favorite places to take people in the vineyards. Uh, In terms of a favorite champagne house, I like Boiselle Mm -hmm. in Epernay because they limit the number of participants to 12. And you get to visit their tank rooms and their cellars. And it was led by a woman until two years ago. She just left it to her uh, sons. And she's a member of one of my favorite associations of women in Champagne called La Transmission, Mm -hmm. which was created around the same time I created Delectable, my Mm -hmm. business. Mm -hmm. And it was created by Maggie Enriquez. She was the CEO of Krug. Oh. and the co-owner of Champagne A.R. Le Noble, both of them really struggled as women in the male-dominated industry. And they created oh. this association of nine women, different ages, from different sub-regions of Champagne, and who play different roles. I can give you the website that you can put in yeah. their show notes. Fascinating, yes. And Evelyne is one of the uh, the nine women, and she's... She plays a really important role in, she lives in Epernay, Mm -hmm. involved in, uh, she gave up her career as an archaeologist to take over uh, the Champagne house when her father died unexpectedly and her brother, who was supposed to take over also. And so she talked to her husband, who was an engineer, I believe, and said, look, we have two choices. Either we continue to be uh, an archaeologist and an engineer, or we take over the family business. And she decided to take over the family business. And she's an amazing woman. And I find their visits very intimate Mm. and you get to learn more. And it's less like when you go visit uh, big houses like Monte Chandon Mm. or Veuve Clicquot, you get the Disneyland bling bling Mm. side and you only visit the cellars where the bottles are aging. And so you Mm. don't really get to understand how champagne is made, even if they describe it. But, you know, some people are more visual. Yeah. And you you see that they can have stainless steel tanks or oak Mm. barrels. Mm. And what you choose to make your wine in uh, affects the flavors and aromas of the, uh, the champagne. Fabulous. You advertise masterclasses, tours, tastings, all sorts of things, loads of ways to connect with champagne. Tell me about your brilliant business that you just mentioned, Delectable. So the name of my company is actually a French word game. Oh, uh, really? Delect, delect means to savor uh-huh. and bulle means bubbles. So it's about savoring oh, bubbles. Brilliant. I did wonder about uh, the I name. Mean- mm. Very clever. <laughs> I love it. French people get it right away, but I usually have to explain it to uh, English speakers. But I designed uh, a workshop called From Grape to Glass, Mm -hmm. which is really with women in mind. Yes. uh, Because they buy 70% of the champagne, generally speaking, in the world. Mm -hmm. And so this workshop is to really give women the tools and the confidence to understand what styles of champagne they prefer Mm -hmm. and why. Mm-hmm. And how to get the best bang for their buck. Yeah. So I, I talk about, um, you know, opening a bottle safely, pouring. Uh, 
I get them to try the same champagne in two different styles of glasses so that they understand how even your choice of glass affects your experience of the champagne. And then I serve, uh, you know, five different champagnes and in each case, two champagnes at a time. Oh, good. To compare them. Right. And different foods. So, for example, I'll serve a a blanc de blanc Mm -hmm. and a blanc de noir Mm -hmm. with smoked salmon Mm -hmm. and charcuterie. And Mm -hmm. I get them to try the smoked salmon with the blanc de blanc, smoked salmon with the blanc de noir, charcuterie with the blanc de blanc, charcuterie. And so you really experience um, the the pairings and, of course, the selection of about five or six cheeses or something like that to um, experience that, you know, Champagne's the ultimate wine to pair with uh, with cheese, but some champagnes pair better with some cheeses, and so yes. we learn about that uh, as well. So that's my from grape to glass workshop, and most women walk out of there knowing, aha, okay, when I'm eating oysters or uh, caviar, I need to find a blanc de blanc. If mm. I'm having roast chicken, then I need something that has more pinot in the blend or something yeah. like that. Yeah, um, and I suppose then that they know what they want to ask for too when they're out at a restaurant yeah. rather than just be told this is the one you're having. Yeah, yes. I give them the vocabulary they need mm. that when they walk into a, a wine shop or a restaurant mm. and they know what they're eating or they know what style of champagne they like, they can say, ah, can you recommend a young fruity champagne that has more uh, Meunier in the blend mm. or, you know, like depending on <laughs> what it is they, they prefer, but at least they walk out, they walk out of my place knowing what they like and what to ask for. Yeah. That must be so empowering for them. Do you think one of your favorite things about your business, the way that you empower women through those kinds of workshops? It started as a joke, a woman who makes these really cool shoes with interchangeable heels. Oh, really? Um, yeah, uh, I can put those in the. Wait, I've never uh, seen those Tanya before. Heath. Oh, you will Fabulous. love their perfect. And of course, that they're invented by a woman who yes. multitasks during her day. Yes. You know, like she drops off the kids and then runs to work and then goes to a fancy dinner. And uh, you don't want to necessarily have to lug uh, different pairs of shoes during your day. And so she has. You just buy the shoe, and yeah. then you can have three different heights of heels a different style some have stiletto some are more chunky yeah and every color and style in the rainbow and so you just have to put two heels in your purse <gasps> and off you go and so if you travel brilliant. <laughs> yeah I know and it is brilliant and mm-hmm. especially for women who travel you know yes. if you want shoes that match different outfits and yeah. stuff like that yeah. and when I discovered her shoes and it turns out she's a champagne lover Right. I convinced her to let me do a champagne tasting in her shop because I was like, I've never heard of these. More women need to hear about yes. these shoes. Yes. And anyways, so we did a, a champagne tasting in her, her shop, but she joked with me and said, you empower women one bottle of champagne at a time. Mm-hmm. I laughed, at, but it's become sort of my tagline yeah. because thinking about it, you know, I empower the women who make champagne by telling their stories and giving them confidence. Mm. And I also empower female entrepreneurs. I try to at least once a month have an event where my special guest is a female entrepreneur. So, you know, it could be that woman who makes the um, uh, shoes with interchangeable heels. Yeah. People who listen can't see the painting behind me, but she's um, a woman from Champagne who all the responsibility, her parents owned a small champagne house and all the responsibilities went to her brother. And at the same time, she found out that her husband kind of liked his secretaries. And so she needed a way to cope and she taught herself how to paint. And what she does is she tastes a champagne and translates it into a painting. (gasps) And so, and she made this one specifically uh, for me and she does work now. She, she's been doing this for three, well, I don't know, maybe four or five years now, she won um, uh, Best International Wine Artist. Uh, she's doing paintings for big champagne houses, like commissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do a workshop in Paris with her. I'm just about to um, do my third one. The first one was called uh, The Art of Blanc de Blanc. Right. The second one was called Fifty Shades of Pink. <laughs> um, 
where we focused on a rosé champagne and mm-hmm. she brought like a dozen of her paintings of rosé champagne. I served uh, six different uh, rosé champagnes mm-hmm. made by women. Mm-hmm. And the other special guest was one of the winemakers who's ah. a woman. And so, you know, it's a um, maximum 12 people, a mm-hmm. workshop where you get to meet the artist. Yep. She talks about champagne in a different way. The winemaker talks about it in her way and I talk about it in my way. And so it gives you different angles onto the, the champagnes. A complete immersion, so, really. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a lot of links from you. We need her link as well. <laughs> There's going to be a lot. We're going to have a whole page of links just with you. In your opinion, at the moment I'm sitting here sipping on a, a little glass of champagne as I talk to you because I thought, well, you know, that would only be only be the right thing to do, really. Absolutely. In your opinion, is champagne an everyday drink like this or is it just for special occasions? So... You asked me why I specialized in champagne and I mm. gave, gave you the, uh, the geeky answer. Yeah. But what I also, because it's a complex wine, what I also love is the celebratory side of it, yeah. but not just for special occasions. Like, it turns ordinary moments into extraordinary moments. I've been known to pop a cork when I finally get around to vacuuming. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> In my house, that's um, an extraordinary moment, I must tell you, <laughs> when I do it. <laughs> so I'm really lucky because champagne's in my backyard. And so I have yeah. access to very affordable champagne and mm. a diversity of it. And so, you know, I can get champagnes that are delicious, that have won medals for 16 euros a bottle. Yeah. Um, and, that's you know, that's almost as expensive as some uh, bottled waters. Oh, even less expensive. <laughs> some, some of those crazy bottles, there's like these water bars going on right now where you can have like water from uh, uh, an iceberg in Alaska or yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so me, it's every day. Every day. I love that. Well, I won't ask you for your fave champagne, as I'm sure from the sounds of things it'd be like me choosing a favourite child, although I do have a favourite child, but it's different depending on the day and what's going on really. (laughs) But can you tell me, though, how do you choose that everyday champagne? What should we be looking for when selecting our champers? To me, it really depends on what you're eating. Okay. If you're eating fish, seafood, Mm -hmm. then you want to go for a Blanc de Blanc. If you're Mm -hmm. eating meats, you want to go for a Blanc de Noir or Mm -hmm. champagne that has uh, more Pinot Noir or Mm -hmm. Meunier in it. But it also depends on the occasion. Mm. I was interviewed recently for Richard Julen's website where it was Mm -hmm. five questions about which champagne would you treat your parents? Which champagne would you Mm -hmm. treat yourself? Which champagne would you treat your boss? Which champagne would you treat a special guest? And so it really depends on who I'm drinking with, uh, what I'm eating, where I am. Uh, There's just uh, so many possibilities, but it has to be a champagne made by a woman. Yes. Now that I can completely understand. I do like the way you said earlier that you really show that to your clients because you're quite right. How would we know? Like we can't tell, especially in Australia, if we're buying a champagne, which clearly to be a champagne has to be from France, but how can we tell if it was a woman that made it or involved in it? We have to actually go away and do some research. So the fact that you can actually work that out and inform people and give them that kind of intimate understanding of the way that particular wine has been made and who buy, I think is fabulous. Well, actually, because I'm very open with my knowledge, I actually put together a list that's freely available on my website homepage. And or if you go to my Instagram account, there's a link from my profile to the list. And so I've sorted it into different categories. You know, is it a a female owner? Is it a female uh, seller master, a female grower? It's not uh, a complete list everywhere. But it's a good starting point, yeah. um, especially for the big houses that you see. Ah, I didn't know that uh, Dutz has a female uh, cellar master or Perrier Jouet or things like that. Mm. And another thing that I do, it started during uh, confinement uh, for the first lockdown. I started doing webinars and ah. one of them is called Bubbly Badasses, Women in the <laughs> History of Champagne. 
Love it. And <laughs> they're my research notes because I'm work- I have a book project to on that topic oh, about the role of women in the history uh, of Champagne. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes all the way from Joan of Arc to the women today. And that's really what I'm known for yeah. is that webinar. And I still do it every once in a while. It's just I've been so busy with excursions to Champagne and workshops in Paris. I haven't had time to host a webinar, but I often do it for like team buildings or women who want to get together online from different continents, uh, friends that haven't seen each other in ages or sometimes birthdays and stuff like that. I host uh, private sessions for, for people and that really gives a good overview of the women. Yeah. I know champagne must be made in champagne to earn that name, but how is it different from what is made elsewhere, like a Cremant, for example, made elsewhere in France, perhaps? So in champagne, they've got a rule book, which is called the Cahier des Charges. It's about this thick, and it governs everything from the grape varieties you're allowed to plant, the distance between the vines, the height, the pruning techniques, the dates you're allowed to harvest, the yield you're allowed to harvest. And if you compare to, let's say, a Cremant de Bourgogne, the main differences, of course, are the the soils where the grapes grow and the grape varieties are different. But in Burgundy, for example, they use a lot of uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in their Cremants. But in Champagne, so if you took a, a Champagne that was 50% Chardonnay, 50% Pinot Noir, Mm -hmm. and a Cremant, 50% uh, Chardonnay, 50% uh, Chardonnay. Once you, so you do your first fermentation in your tank or your barrels, and then in Champagne, you're only allowed to start blending as of January 1st, okay? Uh And that's so that the uh, cellar master or the winemaker knows what he or she had in her grapes. Okay? Mm. I'm not familiar with the blending rules for Burgundy, but I think they're a little bit more relaxed. Then you bottle your blend with some more sugar and some uh, yeast. The yeast eats the sugar and makes bubbles and alcohol, and mm-hmm. they're trapped inside the bottle, and that's what makes the bubbles. But in Champagne... A non-vintage, or what more and more people are calling a multi-vintage when you blend several years, Mm. needs to spend a minimum of 15 months aging in the cellars in contact with the Ah, yeast. A crémant only needs to, the minimum requirement is nine months. Okay. Okay. So if you compare the flavors and aromas of a bottle with the same grape varieties that spent 15 months in the cellar versus nine months, Mm -hmm. it's going to be very different. Yeah. The Cremant will be a lot more fruity, young, fresh, whereas the Champagne, because the wine has spent more time in contact with the yeast, is more yeasty, bready, brioche than a Cremant would be. So that's just comparing Champagne with a Cremant de Bourgogne. Mm. But uh, the other wine regions in France that use the same method with the second fermentation in the bottle, Mm. um, what changes is mostly the grape varieties and the terroir. So in, right. in the Loire, the Cremants will have more Chenin mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. In Alsace, it might be more Pinot Blanc uh, yeah. or Pinot Gris. Mm. So the grape variety affects the aromas and the amount of time affects the aromas and flavors, but also the price tag. Yes, of course. In Australia, the women from AbFab, as we call them here, absolutely fabulous, are hugely popular. I'm not sure if it's the same right around the world, and I'm not sure if it is in France. Well, it will be in the UK, obviously. I don't know if they're the sensation over there that in the US or in France that they are here, uh, or at least they were in their heyday. A few years back, though, the two of them, Jennifer Saunders and Dawn French, took off to the Champagne region, and there was a specific purpose, as in their show, Ab Fab, their characters, Patsy and Eddie, consistently downed Bollinger by the Magnum, and they, so they went to Epinay to uncover all the secrets of champagne and they produced a TV special, which was, as they say, fabulous. Do you think that we need to keep those special bottles like the Bolly or a Tatager or a Moet? Should we keep those special bottles for celebrations or are all the bottles made in the Champagne region special somehow? 
Well, I think any bottle will transform an ordinary moment into an extraordinary moment. Mm. And so you can decide when you want to feel special. It doesn't have to be New Year's Eve or uh, Mm. birthdays or weddings. You know, I think one of the consequences of COVID is that people realize that life can be short Mm. and you need more special moments uh, in your life and it's up to you to make them. And drinking champagne certainly helps make more special moments. Yeah. I think also you made a very good point earlier too. Uh, I know that Patsy and Eddie, I shouldn't call them that because they went there as Jennifer and Dawn, but when they went to Bollinger to uncover all of the secrets that they were able to be told there, it really was, I don't know if it was the glitzy Disneyland, but it definitely was the more austere kind of experience um, of a champagne house. And I think your advice earlier where, you know, go to the smaller houses, you'll find out more, get that intimate experience. I think that's the way people can connect more closely with something like the method of, of making champagne. I don't know that you would get that in the bigger houses like where they went. When they were there, they got to see everything because, you know, they're who they are. And they went to all these places behind the scenes and all these other different, uh, you know, the calves underneath. I don't think your regular person in the street gets that. But it, when people go to where you suggested, I can imagine they'd get to see behind the curtain at what the wizard's actually doing and what's going on. Exactly. And getting back to the saving bottles for special occasions, um, if I had a euro for every time someone told me uh, we were given – uh, this bottle for our wedding anniversary and we've been keeping it for a special occasion and they open it and they're so disappointed because the champagne's gone flat, oh, you know, yeah. um, because the bottles do, the houses do all the aging for you. Yeah. When you buy a bottle, you're meant to drink it pretty much right away. Yeah. You know? There's yeah. A, a rule of thumb that you can keep it for the same number of years that it's aged in the cellar. So you know, if it's spent two years in the cellar aging, then you need to drink it within two years. Uh, ah. If it's spent like Comte de Champagne, uh, 10 years in the cellars, then you can keep it for 10 years. But don't save those bottles for special occasions. I that did are too not far know away. that. That is yeah. brilliant yeah. advice. Okay. Well, I better go downstairs and grab myself one of those other bottles that I've been not touching for a while and check out the dates on it. It's a very serious business, clearly, champagne, bringing in millions per year in earnings around the world. But you seem to, in the way that you deal with it, you seem to inject a little bit of fun, even just by the language you use in your socials and the way that you describe what you do. Is it hard to keep the fun as a focus when there is such a serious business to be done? I think I do a bit of both. I try to use humour to get serious messages across, Mm -hmm. you know, about some of the obstacles or challenges women have making champagne, there are some serious issues. But I do try to use humor to get the messages uh, across. So it, it depends. Some are more serious and they get less likes. Some are lighthearted and they get the most likes, which, does, <laughs> which I find frustrating. But I do use humor to get important messages across. Yeah. Apart from the Champagne region, have you travelled through other parts of France? You alluded to that earlier. What's uh, your favourite region? There's so many for so many different reasons. So the father of my child was passionate about cycling and he used to do all these races all over France. So I tagged along to visit all of these parts uh, of France. I don't necessarily like the um, Côte d'Azur on the beaches, Mm -hmm. like As a Canadian, I grew up with empty beaches Mm. uh, where my mom's from in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. And on the Côte d'Azur, it's very glitzy. Look at me, fake tans, fake boobs, fake Mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And it's so superficial. And so Mm. I'm, I'm not interested in that. You know, you're on the beach and if you turn... Everyone else has to turn because you're packed like sardines on the oh, beach. I'm oh, not interested in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's probably nice in the wintertime when not as many people are around, but I like more the back country in Provence, uh, mm. you know, far away from the, the glitz where you go to visit uh, olive tree farms uh, mm. or uh, 
uh, lavender farms um, yeah. where you get to experience the local cuisine because one of the reasons I love France so much is like in Canada, you have to drive for about three days before the scenery changes. Okay? It's yeah. all trees yeah. or yeah. all prairies for yeah. three days. But in France, you drive 50 kilometers outside of Paris and it's a completely different landscape and culture. You know, the their local specialties, the type of cheese from that particular region. Yeah. Or, or the dish. Um, or, I love, yeah. yeah. And I love the Alps. I love going yeah. skiing in the Alps because... When I was little as a kid skiing in Canada, you like you're skiing at minus 20, whereas here it's, it feels like spring skiing all the time and the yes. uh, long runs and stuff like that. So uh, I love the Alps, the mountains. Um, I mean, there's so many nice places. In- <laughs> yeah, well, there's so much to look forward to, though. You know, every time you go to Champagne, you can just nick off somewhere else for another weekend on the way home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she says the rest of us going. Oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> well, there are three questions that I ask in almost every episode. Describe for me your perfect French day. Well, I'm a monster before I've had coffee, <laughs> uh, so I make sure that I've got some uh, fresh coffee beans from a local uh, brûlerie, and I make myself a good coffee. I'm not a materialistic person. But I love spending money on food. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm blessed. Well, actually, I kind of curse him right now. But downstairs from me, um, a bakery, patisserie, opened last October. And he was a candidate on uh, Top Chef. And I've gained five kilos since October since he opened. (laughs) But he has the most amazing viennoiseries and pastries and breads. And so I like going to his place to try a different type of croissant, a different type of, like he's got so much variety there. Mm. And all my food shops on, I live on a very, um, a street with, uh, well, just around the corner with a cheesemonger, uh, a fish, seafood, uh, my butcher. I love walking into my cheese shop and Yannick greets me uh, or my fruit and veg guys. Salut le Canadien, because they all nickname me the Canadian. (laughs) And even if it's a big city, each neighborhood has its own sort of little village atmosphere. It takes a while to get to know the merchants, but once they see you coming every day or every two days, then they're like friends. So I love uh, looking at what's seasonal, picking up some cheeses, asking Yannick, oh, what do you recommend today? What's in, like, because cheeses have their own season uh, as well. And sometimes it gets like, yeah. I didn't know that. I do a cheese and champagne workshop, uh, (gasps) which is one of the other things that I offer. And you learn stuff like that. Um, But I love, yeah, I love shopping for food. And then my daughter, who's 15, is unfortunately for my wallet, uh, a real foodie. And... Ah. Just having a nice dinner with really good ingredients at the end of the day and talking about how her day went and how Mm. mine, that uh, to me is a great French day. That sounds just exquisite to me. Because I'm not counting my work, you know. No. (laughs) To get the work Champagne. Yeah, yeah. uh, Well. Is a lot of fun, but it's tiring as well. Yeah. And this is about your perfect day and often the perfect moments in life that we think about are those that are with the people we love the most. So, yeah, gorgeous. That's a gorgeous way to spend a day. What's your fave French food, given you're such a foodie, uh, to order in France or perhaps to cook at home? I think you can guess that based on everything I've said so far. Cheese. Cheese, (laughs) fromage, beaucoup de fromage. Because there's so much variety of cheese. Like I forget that I know that there's at least 365 different cheese varieties. And so you you can have a different one every day. Yeah. Brilliant. I went to a fromagerie in the St. Paul region of the Marais when I was in Paris last. And I was just astounded. There's two shop fronts and they usually have one open. But if that doesn't satisfy you, you they'll open up the other little shop and you can go in there and get these other particularly smelly cheeses. And, oh, I was just in heaven. I just was a bit overwhelmed, actually, by 
the choices. I looked at it and I thought, I want one of everything, and they did let me try a lot. They were just beautiful, but as in the people were just beautiful letting me do that. But I didn't have enough space to eat them all in the amount of time that I was there. So I need to go for a whole year so I can try all 365, one after the other, and eat the whole wheel every day of every single one of them. Yeah. And you're talking about my fun social uh, posts and yeah. stuff, uh, on yeah. my posts on social media. Um, the ones people tend to like a lot are my food pictures, like where I say, oh, I, ah. I take a picture of my my pastry yeah. or my cheese or stuff like that. And I do I love design- your food pictures. They're pretty <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. So because people were liking them so much and I was getting some solo travelers who can't necessarily afford a full grape to glass uh, workshop for just one person, yeah. I designed an experience that I called shop, sip and snack for like a solo traveler who wants yeah. me to take them. I take them shopping in my neighborhood to my butcher, my baker, my uh, uh, cheesemonger. We uh, buy food together and then come back. And based on what we bought in terms of food, we select a bottle together. And I explain why I chose that bottle versus another one. And then if they want to explore glasses, uh, stemware for champagne, we talk about that. If they want to talk about the history of champagne, I talk about that. So it's like an experience designed just for one person who just wants to hang out with me and drink champagne and eat good food. Oh, and who wouldn't want to do that? That sounds just awesome. You've got so much going on. I mean, really, seriously, anyone going back to France at the moment or going for the first time, really needs to jump on your website and actually explore and really see which of your experiences is for them because you've got so much going on. I want to do one of everything, I think. I mean, you know, okay, you're going to get sick of me. But over years I'll get one of everything done because it all sounds like so much fun. I love it. I love the sound of all of it. It's brilliant. Just then when you talked about stemware, there are some new stemless champagne flutes that I've seen. Have you got an opinion about those or do you prefer it with a stem? So I mentioned that I studied biology, so Mm. I have like a science geek side to me. Mm. There's a physicist at the University of Reims who Mm. studies the science of bubbles. He measures the size, shape, speed, behavior, and he takes these high-speed photos of it. And I use his research to inform my opinion. Well, they're not so much opinions as I use his research and his findings to justify why this type of glass versus another one. Yeah. And I have a preference for tulip-shaped flutes for scientific reasons. Okay. So the aromas are contained in the bubbles. If you're drinking from a coupe like you are, yeah. the surface is very big. Yes. Okay? And so you lose your bubbles and your aromas very quickly. Yes. Uh, in a narrow flute, you have the opposite where you get to admire your little tornado of bubbles in your class, but the opening is so small that all the bubbles and aromas and CO2 are trapped at the top of the glass. Like often, I'm sure this has happened to you before, someone yeah. serves you a glass of a sparkling wine in a narrow flute, you go yeah. to drink it and you get up your nose and it's called effervescence burn. Okay. And tulip glasses are designed. You want to look for ones that have a V shape at the bottom and then that open up and wide in the middle and a wider opening, but not like a coupe so that the, because champagne is a wine and you need to be able to get your nose. you, You want to admire the bubbles, but you also want to get your nose in there to smell the aromas. And that's especially important for a vintage champagne um, because it's the aromas of that particular vintage that make it different from another vintage. So you need to be able to smell it. Ah, this is fascinating. Well, I do have some chilled glasses. I very rarely use them. And with my beautiful vintage coupe that I just adore, I'm just going to have to drink very quickly. I decided before the bubbles disappear, I think that's going to have to, that's the way it's going to have to work with those ones. Now, do you listen to French music? 
I do. I listen to all styles except for maybe heavy re- metal, which I can't stand. Yeah, yeah. I'm with um, you. Yeah. Well, do you have a favorite French song or French music artist to share with the listeners? Because I have a Lulabelle's Francophile Spotify playlist. And then the listeners can go and listen on that. But I also encourage them, if they actually like some music, to go to the artists themselves and then to purchase the music from them too. So my favourite songs depend on my mood. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, one that I've got sort of on replay uh, often, um, you know the song competition called Eurovision? Way, that made have a popular way back way. when? Mm-hmm. Well, two years ago, the candidate for France, her name is Barbara Pravi, P-R-A-V-I, mm-hmm. and her song is called Voila. And ah. to describe it, it's kind of like a modern version of Edith Piaf. Mm-hmm. And the words of the song are about, look at me. This is who I am. Yeah. Take it or leave it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it really speaks to me because, you know, as a woman, I'm 56. I am who I am. And I accept uh, the wrinkles, the mm-hmm. nasty mood before my coffee, all of that stuff. I'm not trying to pretend to be someone that I'm not. Mm. And so I really like that song. Voila. And this yeah. is who I am. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And you know what? By the time we get to our age, we know who we are. And this is it. Take it or leave it. This is who we are. Voila. (laughs) Voila. Love it. Well, merci beaucoup for spending this time with us today, Cynthia Kutu, and for sharing your wonderful story of the world of women and champagne with us all. I have found it extraordinarily insightful and quite fascinating. So merci beaucoup for all of that time. Mais je vous en prie. Alors, c'est tout et c'est la fin aujourd'hui. That is all for another Little Bells Francophiles episode. I hope that you're enjoying being transported to France via our podcast chats with some brilliant guests and their French stories. To be notified when new episodes are released, subscribe on your favourite podcast platform or follow Little Bells Francophiles on Insta. That's where you'll also find lots of my personal French photos as well as some from our Little Bells Francophiles guests. You can now also subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Francophile Fix, where I post little movies and clips to keep your Frenchy vibes going. For all of the links from today's chat, and there are a lot of them, including the links for Cynthia's business, Delectable, as well as her fave music, a recette. Well, it's actually, it's not a recette, uh, some fave fromage. Head to the Little Bells Francophiles website to blog post number 77. The website link is in the show notes for today's episode as well. Come and join me next time in the Little Bells Francophiles and together we can stay connected to one of our fave destinations, France. Au revoir et merci en call, Cynthia. Onwards and upwards like a champagne bubble. Ah, to the fay. Love that. <laughs> Au revoir de moi, Louise Prichard. Bonjour et à bientôt mes amis.